Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 336 with Thor Erniston of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. Welcome back to another episode. So let's talk about today's guest. His name's Thor Erniston, and he's an incredible founder. He helped build a product called Farmville, and I really go through with him how to start a business during a crisis. So he started his most recent company, Strata, during this pandemic. And what's really cool about this interview is we he really just breaks down how the hell he's built this company so quickly and how he thinks about building companies from the ground up. I know many of you might be thinking right now, I want to start a company or now is like the perfect time to start a company or maybe you're just about to launch something. The way that he thinks about product development is so incredibly powerful. You're going to learn so much when it comes to starting your business. Oftentimes these days when I do these interviews, I usually talk about growing a business or building a business or marketing a business, or hiring team for a business, or building culture, and all these other topics. I haven't really talked to somebody about how to start a business, especially during a time like this. And he really breaks down this roadmap for you guys on how you can actually go out, find an idea, create a product that people will love, that people will pay for, that solves a real problem. All right, guys, so before we jump in, please do take the time to leave us a review for this podcast. Please do share this 
with a friend wherever you're listening, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, doesn't matter. Please do leave us a review and please do share this with one to two friends. We don't charge for this podcast. I know with absolute confidence, a lot of these founders that you hear on this podcast, you don't hear anywhere else. We work so hard to find these incredible founders and get them to give back and share their experiences around building billion-dollar companies, hundred-million-dollar companies, you name it. Like They've all achieved massive success and are at the top of their game. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now I'll jump the show. Thor, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, so um, look, uh, one of the first questions that I ask uh, everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? My job or my first job? Uh, how did you find yourself doing uh, the work you're doing today? Perfect. Yeah, it's kind of the same uh kind of the same answer either way. So when I first came to America, I'm originally from Iceland, born and raised on the northern coast in a little fishing village of about 500 people. And uh, moved to America, not knowing where to go or what to do or anything like that. So I wound up in a little uh, military defense contracting town in Alabama called Huntsville. And uh, the only job there was really defense contracting, which required citizenship because it required a security clearance. So couldn't really do any quote-unquote normal job. So instead, I wound up trying to solve other people's problems. I wound up doing a lot of consulting, a lot of startup work, a lot of technical work, and really trying to understand if somebody comes to me with a pain point of, you know, I, I have this magical solution, if only the world knew, and realizing very quickly that none of the problems were technical and they were all just sort of people-related one way or another around product market fit or on users or on like understanding the pain point in a deep enough way that um, since then, that was 20 years ago, since then I've spent my career trying to understand those kinds of problems, trying to then come up with products, see if there's a product market fit and then build companies around it. Love it. Um, now, I know you spent some time at uh, Zynga as lead architect of Farmville. Um, which is one of the most played games of all time, and uh, yeah, were you, were you um, like yeah, you they went from like two hundred to two thousand employees in one year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of really interesting stories that came out of that, and uh, so I worked on Frontierville primarily, and I uh, worked with the Farmville team and and uh, others as well too. But the main thing there that's fascinating is that. A good way to characterize Zynga as an analytics company with sort of a gaming wrapper. So what we did was went really deep on analytics, really deep on product management, what we call today product management, and uh, and figured out how to give people what they wanted. Um, we'd measure everything, every click, every modal, every pop-up, every interaction. And then we would understand what do people interact with, what do they appreciate, what do they not, what drives engagement, what doesn't. And then fold that in across the entire portfolio of games. And it worked amazingly well. And then afterwards, figured out see if that would apply to other domains and other areas. So the lessons I learned there were really transformative in the way that it changed how I thought from thinking about solving problems to thinking about solving problems at scale. That's interesting. So um, what happened next when you move on from Zynga? Started a, a healthcare company called Rally Health. And there's a handful of people that were 
were working on it. So it was four of us in the beginning. And, um, and really, it was the same kind of value prop of how do you get people to connect and drive engagement, except instead of tending to a virtual farm and buying more virtual fertilizer, it was about engaging with their health. And how do you get people to have to basically care more about their health and then over time be healthier? Uh, and that worked really well. The the concept and the like what we built the engine for it is still market leading, currently owned by United Healthcare. And I don't know how many billions of dollars of revenue flow through it, but uh, a few years ago across the one billion dollar year mark. Yeah, wow. And that was acquired. Mm-hmm. When was that? Yeah. It's a bit of a convoluted process, but uh, 2016, I'd say, was, uh, was when it was acquired. Wow. Um, and uh, then what happened next? So then I uh, started a company back in uh, around that time, a little bit before that, actually, called Alpha, where what we would see over and over would be people that had an idea and they thought it was great, but they couldn't show that idea to anybody. They couldn't give anybody access to their product. They couldn't get people to care. Uh, for various reasons. So they would get money from investors, they would build an entire company. And then only when the idea launches, they see when the product launches, they see that it was just fatally flawed in some way. And what we saw is like that, that's the life of a startup founder, we're all familiar with that, we all understand the customer development journey. Uh, And what we saw was when you take that, and you plop it over into corporate world, you don't have the same customer development mindset, you don't have the same experimentation and the same focus on learning. So instead, you just put more resources against it. So product after product comes out with hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. And if one person had seen it beforehand, one person would have said, that's idiotic. One user with nothing to lose as opposed to, you know, corporate, uh, sort of corporate executives and bureaucrats that are trying to just get to the next stage of whatever they're doing. And, um, and then we realized that there's a lot of early adopter types that understand customer development that are inside of these organizations. So we we built a product to sort of empower them, built a insights platform to be able to run these kinds of experiments at scale. So we have 110 million users. You can test any idea or concept or prototype or competitor's product against and really build a feedback loop with your audience, a feedback loop with your target customers, whoever they might be. And, uh, and it, and it worked phenomenally well. We have um, almost half the Fortune 100 as clients, really saturated in certain legacy industries that are um, that are all going through change right now, especially because of COVID. Yeah, wow. That's really impressive. Um, I thought I thought Lean Startup Movement, um, you know, is really pioneering and and that and less and less people are thinking this way that you described around kind of build first then ship and then yeah then then never like not look at iterating or like right. then right. fail that's yeah. what you'd yeah. think that's what you would think but uh but you know as soon as you uh, as soon as you go to a, an office and you realize what you need to get the product in the market how many lawyers will tell you no how many accountants and actuaries will will have problems with whatever you're doing for whatever reason so it'll change some model or some formula and you'd be surprised by how many of these sort of back of the house people will run consumer facing digital products in finance, in healthcare, in retail, in like you almost you name it. Most industries in America are actually are actually done with uh, risk in mind as opposed to customer value. 
and building a building a product and scaling it and getting to any kind of meaningful level for a Fortune 500 company is like it's a big hurdle. And having data within the organization to arm the people that are trying to show, no, this is actually good for the customer because this is what they want is invaluable. Mm. So, you know, that's really the problem we set out to solve was how do we empower those people within the organization that have taken all the training, they've gone through all the lean workshops, they've gone through all agile, everything, and then all the buzzwords, like they're teaching us buzzwords. Because they're just trying to get the message out in the organization, you know. You, you'd you'd think that it has already changed, but it really it really um, takes a long time to transform how people work and how people sort of relate to one another. Interesting. So um, then uh, you're still working on Alpha, uh, and then you recently launched Strata, right? Yeah, so I'm I'm still involved as a board member and obviously founder in Alpha, but we transitioned over to new leadership uh, at the end of last year, and it's going really well, both as a company but also as a team. It's really exciting to see something that you built, like take the take the next step into uh, into maturity, if you will. And um, I have a teenage son, and it's like a similar process. So it's pretty it's pretty interesting to have parallels between you know, building something and, and then obviously raising a raising a human being to see what happens next is what I'm super excited for. And then um, we spent a few months traveling, and then earlier this year set out to launch a company really focused on that connective tissue that I mentioned. Like how do how do people form relationships and and build meaningful relationships? Um, and it turns out to be something a handful of people can do really well. And the way they do it is very similar. It's, I mean, you, you go back hundreds of years, actually, and you have like the same kind of mental heuristics that help somebody know when to reach out, why to reach out, what to say. And they're not that complicated. And yet you have all these tools, CRM tools, LinkedIn, Salesforce, things like that, that will do some part of it. But it doesn't actually help with the action. It doesn't actually help with you reaching out. It'll help you track. It'll help your manager stay on top of what you're doing. It'll help give you dashboards. It'll help give you all of that stuff. But really, as the individual that's trying to just be you know, a good person for your community or for your network, um, all you need is reach out to Nathan because of this thing that happened a few weeks ago and just check in and see how it's going. And it doesn't have to be anything more complex than that. So we understood the problem reasonably well, but it was a hypothesis at the time. And we thought that live events was going to be like where people really are meeting so much. And you have so many friends and people you know from a live event circuit. Like I have friends that live in New York that I only see in Europe and California. I've literally never seen them in New York. But uh, we when we launched the second week of March, turns out live events were not really going to be a thing. <laughs> So it was a really interesting process to, to launch a company into a space that then had a pandemic completely squash all of our plans. But the underlying problem is still there. Like the underlying concept is still actually more relevant than ever because now you have to be so intentional. You're not, you don't have the serendipity of just running into people. So you don't have the, the luxury of not doing anything. Because you are locked in your apartment or in your house, and you will not see anyone other than your family ever. So when you want to stay in touch with these people that are 
not necessarily in a transactional sales-oriented way where all that's going to go into a CRM. And they're not your closest friends either because you're going to text with them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to see them. You're going to make an effort to do that. It's really the other few hundred people in your life that are that are instrumental in driving business and driving introductions and driving anything you need to do professionally as an individual, whether you're in really any executive role, whether you're a founder or whether you're an investor, like all of those profiles have the same type of benefit from their network. And to be able to activate them and engage people I can't tell you how many customer development interviews we've done where everybody has the same kind of process and the same kind of uh, system. And I'll show you what, what it is. And it all is some version of this, where it's just a list of names or a task list or something like that in, on a piece of paper or in a spreadsheet. You cross them out and you move on. And then hopefully you'll get back to it. Hopefully you'll remember what you did. But in reality, like we all are embarrassed by how often we drop the ball. So what we're doing is building a toolkit to really help with those kinds of things. Interesting. So um, you launched basically, yeah, second week of March, pandemic. Like that's when every company like took a hit. Like every company took a hit. Um, didn't matter where you were, except if you're in like essential services, you took a hit. Um, SaaS, e-com, everything, right? Um, everything. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you launched as a as a company that helped with live events? <laughs> Help people connect. And live events was gonna be our like go to market business development angle because you know it's the the single simple way to frame it was like you go to this event, you walk out with a stack of business cards, then what? Like you want to stay in touch with these people, but you can't. And it doesn't matter how senior you are. It doesn't matter how much, how big of a team you have that helps you do those things. There's still just too much friction in the process. And, uh, and yeah, it, it turned out to be a, a pretty tricky go-to-market. Yeah, I see. So um, what can people learn from what you're doing now with, uh, like, like, the company – um, during, like post-pandemic, because a lot of people watching this, um, they've either been affected with their existing startup or company due to COVID, and the and the you know, it's all it's changed, right? The landscape is different, right? Right. Um, and what can people do when it comes to launching a successful company? Because you've obviously pivoted. Uh, are you doing well now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the problem is more prevalent than ever you have to be intentional in who you reach out to because like human connection matters so a couple of couple of things i would say that are just good heuristics that that i've found to be good heuristics and just like really helpful advice one of them is that you never know how you're going to get somewhere you can have a two-year plan a three-year plan a five-year plan but it really doesn't matter. All you can really know is where you're trying to go and hopefully your first step in that direction. And once you capture those things, you have an aspirational vision, some sort of ultimate goal so that aligns all your effort, all your experimentation, all your product development, all the, all the stuff. So you know where you're going. You know what you need to do today. Like in the beginning, if you just have those two things and nothing else, you're off to a great start. 
even if you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, the same lesson holds true. And I've talked to so many of them, so many both founders as well as executives, senior, senior executives, huge company. And really all they have is alignment and vision. And then they have like six months from now, they have no idea what things are going to be like because nobody does. So the faster you can throw out all those intermediary documents and artifacts that you're tied to, because they're just not true. They're based on so many false assumptions. Like COVID certainly shines a light on all that. Like any plan that was made in in December, like is useless, right? So if you're making data, if you're making decisions based on data from from 2019, it just doesn't matter. So that's number one. And number two, it's really understanding that what you're what you're doing as a founder, like you're not proving necessarily that you're right. You're not. You don't have a product plan that you need to execute because you have all the answers. It's actually the other way around. You have a bunch of questions. So if you frame everything as a hypothesis and your goal becomes to learn, and the way you learn is through experimentation. So all of a sudden now it's not, let me launch a podcast because I know the world needs it. It's like, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. How do we find out? Mm. And it just creates a, a different environment where now as a founder or an executive, when you create the right environment, so you have a culture of learning and experimentation, as opposed to just like mindlessly step A, step B, step C, um, those two things are instrumental in navigating something like COVID. Because you walk into a meeting today, no one has any answers, period, full stop. Somebody will tell you that everything's going to clear up in two weeks. Somebody, Some people will say two years. Like the craziest number I've heard so far is that there's one company in particular that is not planning on operating until uh, starting again until 2024. So they're on hold and it's a, like a big cultural institution um, that basically everybody knows, but like their lead times and their cycles and everything they're now their executive team has been told 2024 is when they start again. So who knows? Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not in terms of how, how things play out. Um, but if you look at it from a, a learner's mindset and you say, all right, so what are the things we're trying to do? What are the things we're trying to figure out? And how do we figure them out? Along the way, you will learn enough and you will build enough and you will do enough to hopefully like discover, I guess, a viable business. But you have to do the first step first, which is understanding alignment. So that everybody is experimenting and sort of wandering aimlessly, but in the right direction. So can you talk us through that process around kind of what what you did to, to kind of, and I hate the word because everyone says it, pivot um, with Strata uh, and, and, you know, have that mindset. Um, you probably had capital, you know, so you had maybe less to risk Did you? because you, you didn't raise anything uh, or you... Or you are using your own funds or? Yeah. So self-funded in the beginning, even to a degree still. And um, we raised a little bit of money. And that process by itself was a huge learning experience because we were talking to investors um, where like the, the start of the conversations was always that they had just lost like all their LPs and even them personally in a big way had lost a third of their net worth overnight. Yeah. When the market crashed in the beginning, yep. eventually recovered, but again, nobody would know that. 
So we had we had uh, funds tell us that their LPs told them, and these are again big like A-list funds in some cases, that it's okay if they slow down on investments because of all the uncertainty. And then sort of going through those conversations in that process, um, pretty sure that you could have still put together a decent round and focused on that. But instead, we focused on product development and really understanding where we're going to go to market and how we're going to do it, because that obviously was thrown out the window as well. So we focused our efforts on two things, on what is the actual ultimate platform need to be and how do we get there and how do we, from a personal standpoint, how do we build the right team to execute on that? And then in the short term, the team that was that was already together, so that my co-founders, like what can they do now that helps us in that direction? And what we came to was helping drive connectivity in virtual events. So if you're at a you know the 85th Zoom webinar of the day, it's like how do you actually what what does being there actually mean? How do you connect with a speaker or a sponsor or another person in the audience? How do you create certain connective tissue around those kinds of interactions. And we built a bunch of tools. We built some actually really good tools to help drive that uh, drive that exchange and drive those interactions so that the speaker would have a virtual inbox basically for that event and they can choose to accept or ignore each one. And you can just go through that much, much easier than giving your email to the whole world, which certain people are reluctant to do. Not really in our community because founders and investors and such will talk to anybody, but but generally, like if you're a special for corporate executive or sort of an author, you have a pipeline. So you might have somebody else managing it for you. Built it out. And uh, and we've dealt now with the majority of the big events companies. And they're all scrambling to go virtual. And they're all scrambling to figure out how do you rebuild the revenue stream online. And we were just a, a small part of that and helping them out with that. So we have a bunch of partnerships there and, and a bunch of users that have gone to the platform for just that part. Just like the initial conversation. And uh, and I'd say it was successful as a learning experience. It was certainly not successful, at least not yet, from a user acquisition standpoint, which is really our goal. So how do you draw, how do you convert people from that into users of the main platform? And uh, the amount of control that certain people, mostly on the corporate side in that process, want to have is, is insane. Like you might have speakers that are like, that, that will say to the organizer, they're not comfortable, even with the safeguard in place, having people able to contact them in case of liability on the like from their employer, which is insane. Which is there's obviously no liability if somebody sends you an unsolicited email, you're not at fault. Um, so there's just all these like human things that come into the mix where we have a technical solution, but because we're not married to it. We could see that that technical solution doesn't necessarily get us to where we need to go in as effective or efficient way as maybe something else. So we're still doing it. We still have a have a product in the market called Nudge for that. But then we launched something um, just last week, actually, in a closed beta that's going really well as well. That is now focused on just helping you as an individual manage your own communication. So forget the virtual event stuff. Forget those ties. It's really just you as an individual. You're trying to be more thoughtful, more mindful. Who should you reach out to this week? Here's three people. Go now and then do more, do more, do more. And it connects to your Gmail or something? 
Exactly. Gmail or Outlook or Exchange. Yeah. Yep. Got you. Interesting. So you're obviously uh, a very, very strong product guy, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and you're obviously really passionate about product development. Um, for anyone that wants to start a business right now with, like you said, it's hard to plan. It's, it's fun mm-hmm. to think ahead. It's fun to think if we can do this, then we do this, and it can turn into this whole big grandiose exactly. thing. Um, what, are, what, what can people be doing right, right now? Like to, yeah, It's a great question, and, and I would go back to the, the first thing I said, which was put a, put a stake in the ground and make it big. Make it like 20 years out, the world's a different place because I did this. And when you have that time horizon in mind, it doesn't matter if it starts during COVID or not. So thinking through problems that won't change. So 20 years from now, what do people still want? Because solving a a smaller problem will eventually, like, oh, that kind of stuff goes away. So if you think about, all right, so here's a a car. I'm going to build a better tool to tune my engine. 20 years from now, that engine will be totally different. So you're going to move, like there's all kinds of things that are shifting, but transportation will not be different. People will still need to go from point A to point B. Even with Zoom, even with video conferencing, even with 3D avatars and virtual reality, there still will be a human need to go from point A to point B. So if you think about that and the underlying sort of human aspect of it, um, for these problems that are not going to go away. So instead of looking at art, so during COVID, the question isn't what is changing. The question is what is not changing. Mm. So what are the things that people still need to do? They still need to connect with other people. They still need to be mindful and be a part of a network, be a part of like a community, be a part of society in a way. So those are the kinds of problems we're solving at Strata. We're still going to need jobs, for example, but now the jobs are global. So like thinking about a local job market all of a sudden doesn't make a whole lot of sense where even though most of our team is in New York or close to New York, you know, really it could be anywhere. Um, so thinking through the problems or thinking through the, the problems that are not going anywhere, say for the next 20 years, and then saying, all right, well, here's how I'm going to impact that. And by really being clear about what that is, it helps you recruit the first few people. It helps you raise money. It helps you clarify your pitch. And then another thing there is when you tell somebody your pitch, having them repeat it to you or having them repeat it to somebody else with you not in the room to see if it's even clear what you're talking about. And if it's not, you keep iterating until you get to a point that you as a founder now have an idea, as an aspirational founder, you have an idea that you're passionate enough about, which is important because you're going to suffer it's a pretty shitty process, especially the first time around. Um, you have to get used to hearing a lot of no's, and that's just how it is. And that's like that's okay because that is the job you're signing up for. Like what people read about is not the job. That is a most likely never going to happen kind of success case. Most even in the other success cases, it's still um, it's still not that glamorous. So. You have to be prepared for all of those things. And if you can do that up front and you can get other people excited about what you're doing, get other people on board, you can get other people to see your vision 
right? At that point, you have some momentum and you can build on that momentum. And then you have others that are trying to help you. Because so many times I've seen like three or four people get together, they start a business because they have a business plan. And then a year or two down the road, when it's kind of working out, they realize that they're actually building three or four totally different businesses. And they were never really on the same page. I'd love to hear kind of from the technical side as well on like building a great product. Like I'd love, I love, I loved your take on the mindset. Um, and I'd love your take around kind of thinking about the problem, but from a technical standpoint, or even like, like what, like where, where do people start? Like you've, you've got an idea, you've, you've got that mindset, you've got that learning mindset. I get it. Uh, it, it, what I want to do, I, I know the problem I want to solve. I know what problem I think I can solve within 20 years from now. I want to put a huge stake in the ground saying that, that I, I helped change, shape the world dramatically over a 20-year period and I've built something of true worth and significance. Um, where do you start? Like, like what, what, what do you do? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it really goes back to the learner's mindset. If you're trying to figure out how do you learn, what happens is you shift out of the mode of technical execution to then saying, all right, so what do we need to build to prove this out? And this is where one of the most bastardized concepts associated with the lean startup movement is MVP, it's minimum viable product. Because what most people look at it as is like, what is the shittiest, cheapest thing we can build to maybe do something that's somehow related to what the actual product will do. Um, but really, it's like, what is the thing we can launch to learn something? So the first thing, for example, with a consumer product, have people sign up. And if you can't get them to sign up, you can't get them to use it. And just it really is just that simple. Even if when they sign up, just whatever. It really almost doesn't matter. It could be an email list. How many people click on your email? Like when we launched Alpha, the... The, the, the process was we understood, again, roughly the problem. We understood the aspirational vision very clearly, which is just quite simply on-demand or even real-time insights. You need something, you have it. Great. How do we commercialize that? So we know it's for product people. We know it's for marketers. We know it's for strategists. We know it's for researchers. We don't know who it's going to resonate with right now for these specific reasons. This is back in 2014. So we bought a whole bunch of email lists, spent thousands and thousands, actually probably tens of thousands of dollars buying email lists for people with different job titles and different industries at different levels and A-B testing the hell out of everything where the value prop is actually what we tested through email outreach. And our first three clients were, were Citibank, AT&T, and Pfizer through slightly different value props, but it resonated so strongly that they would run through their walls, through their procurement office, through their, you know, all the people that are telling them no, because they needed it so much. And we had one case with a fortune, I don't know, fortune 10 company probably now, where it's in a heavily regulated industry. And, um, and the, the person it was a SVP knew that it would take six months to review, but he needed data now, basically. And he, need, he knew he needed to use the product now. So he upped the limit on his corporate credit card, and we had to charge him $10,000 a month on a credit card just because that way it wouldn't trigger the internal flags. So once you have signals like that, once you have like people that want what you're selling, again, I understand the question was about technology, but it really starts there. 
Because then you build it. Then you figure out, okay, what are you actually paying for? And then that's what you build. So you have to build enough to be able to deliver the thing you're doing, whatever it is. But you don't have to build everything. Like, as a matter of fact, you have to build very, 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 very little, just enough to deliver for those earliest adopters. And then you start learning, then you start iterating, then you flesh it out. Then over time, you have, you know, a whole bunch of other things. But chances are nobody is buying a product because it has feature A and B and C and D and E. They're buying one of those. So the faster you can figure out which one they're buying, the faster you can build it. You only have to build one instead of five. So you're really thinking and you're, what you're trying to do when you're starting any business any, and trying to work out what that product is, you're trying to find what is the problem that you can solve that where people will bang down the doors to pay you money for it because then, it, then the sales process just becomes so much easier. The sales process, the product development. The, like If you have people that need your product so much that they like currently – People have to go through a really gnarly authentication screen from if you use Gmail to use our product. Where and we see it because we'll do like onboarding calls sometimes with video and they're like, oh, okay. And we see it because it um, the the messages that Google puts up are really scary, and we know they're scary. But people need this enough to a point where they're willing to accept it. Uh, the liability and uh, nobody's obviously we're all, we're all in this together and we're trying to figure this out together. And that's really what you want. You want the customers to be a part of the team, almost the early, 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 early customers. Like they are so invested in your success because you're solving a problem that they have. That's so acute that they're willing to do all of that. Um, and then once you figure that out, you build it and you streamline it and you automate it and you build it even further. Now that's for, vast majority of products then there are others where you know there might be a technical hurdle but if you're in biotech or drug development or whatever it works or it doesn't work and it's like a it's a science thing like if if the thing doesn't work then forget about it but if you're dealing with software if you're dealing with apps if you're dealing with like those kinds of things that are where there's virtually zero technical risk you know you can build you know you can build yet another website editor like you know that can be done so fine what is the problem with existing ones how do you make it better how do you do it what's the one thing that you can drive people uh drive people to so that's really the thing so like what you do now is really starting point is do anything but if you do these other things you have guardrails around your exploration you have guardrails around your development because also another trap i've seen for early stage founders especially in the like 20 to 40 person team size range where I've seen this a lot is that they start feeling like they're losing control. And if they didn't do this up front, cause you get one chance really to set your culture. And if they want to control every decision in the organization, that's around the point they stop being able to do that. And if you're not sure what your marketing person is doing and you're not sure what your operations person is doing, you're not sure what your CTO is doing and you're not sure it's really aligned. You start having these awkward and very difficult off-sites where everybody's trying to orient and align and all that stuff. Like there's value, obviously, in those things. But the amount of effort and friction it takes to change someone's behavior is, is exponentially greater as the organization grows. Because, and this is, uh, this is applicable to any human behavior change because they set their way in a certain way 
And then for you to change it is now changing who they are as a person in a way. So it's almost impossible to do after the fact. Like when you're the first 10 people or so, like this is really when you go through these exercises, you figure out what are you all here for? Make sure you're all on the same page. Make sure you're all going towards the same goal. And then the rest becomes really easy because now the next 10 people, the marketing person hires, the next 10 people, the operations person hires, the next 10 people that develop the CTO hires, they're all going to be aligned with the original vision as opposed to with their own visions that might create fiefdoms and other, other kinds of friction. So really, it's like setting your stake in the ground in an appropriate way that is easy to communicate, that makes sense to everybody before there is anything, before there's a product, before there's, before there's any investment made in what you're doing. It's really the most yeah, important. I love that. That's so on point. What were you going to say? Sorry? No, I just said to me. I said it in a very absolute way, but I'm saying that is what I found to be the most, the most helpful um, and the biggest and most expensive mistake that a lot of founders and executives make. When we come back to that kind of learning mindset, you know, the hy- hypothesizing, once you do, you know, like you said, like whether it's a sign up, whether it's like how you guys, um, you know, got, got people via outreach, cold outreach, and, and then you worked out what is the value prop, like what what happens next? Yeah, so... Obviously, it depends on the product, but I can talk about some specific experiments and experiences I have where we would, for example, in a healthcare setting, we're dealing with health insurance companies that um, are kind of a definition of legacy companies. Like they are selling a product that is government regulated and cannot change very much. They're selling it in very specific sales cycles that are also government regulated and can't change very much. If you have a new product you want to bring to market, it takes about 36 months before somebody will actually see it because the, your sales team is to sell it to the insurer. The insurer is to sell it to an employer. The employer is to roll it out to their employees. And each one of these steps happens once a year. So it's just a wild uh, hurdle for most large companies in that space to, to iterate quickly. And then obviously going back to the lawyers and, and, and the rest of the people that are telling them, no, they can't do this because of whatever reason. Uh, and in many cases, there are valid reasons. So, um, but when it comes to digital products, like the name of the game is speed and iteration cycles. Like the faster you move, the, the, you're more likely to win. The more shots at goal you have, the more likely to win you are. And what we learned was we had to come up with other ways to do it. So this is when I was coming out of Zynga, where we would launch something, and then maybe an hour later, 10 million people may have used it which was wild. Like, you know, definitively how many people clicked on something or not out of 10 million people. Like there's no, there's no question if it worked or not. Um, then going into this three, four year, uh, life cycle environment, which was just like a totally different ball game. And what we learned was you had to come up with other ways to do it. So what we would do is build landing pages. For example, like we talked about earlier, where people were signing up for something, they're not giving up any personal information. So it didn't have to be as tightly controlled but they don't necessarily know that. And then only one part of the website would be active. So we would drive at that point, hundreds of thousands of dollars of traffic and split test. Will people respond to this module or that module? If you're asking questions, are people more comfortable with a background image being that of a doctor, a nurse, somebody fit, somebody sitting on their couch, 
some abstract image, cartoon image, whatever. And then you iterate, and you iterate, and you iterate. And what we learned, for example, as a specific takeaway is if I'm asking you questions about your health, and there's a picture of a doctor with a clipboard, male or female, doesn't matter, you are not going to answer. Like the hypothesis was this will put you into a mindset where you're more likely to feel okay because like it's almost like that person's interviewing you. And we got on average like three or four questions that people would answer. And then when you flip it to, all right, there's a person running, a person doing something happy and healthy in the background. There's an aspirational objective there. All of a sudden, that three or four or five questions turn into 15, 16, 17 questions that people would answer on average with no other change. And we didn't have to build all this stuff to figure that out. It was literally a fake website with one active module. And that pretty much anyone can do without much coding experience on their own right now. And there's even tools, this is 10 years ago, so there wasn't a lot of tooling around it, but there's all kinds of A-B testing platforms and usability tests that you can run and all kinds of tools like Alpha that you can use to really figure out, is this something people will do or not? Yeah, like, you know, you can use Google Optimize. It's free. You can run up to five tests. Like, yeah, you don't have to spend money even. Exactly. Well, look, um, Thor, this was awesome, man. You've been very, very... Uh, generous with your experiences on building like incredible products and you've had a lot of success. Um, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, uh, is there any anything else that you'd like to share around for anyone that wants to start a company now and you know make it successful during a time like this? Yeah, a couple of things. Well, the first one is is really starting with that aspirational vision and clearly articulating it so that it's like less than definitely less than 10 words, ideally less than five words. Um, once you have that and you start building a team, building momentum, building interest, reach out to people, reach out to me. I'm happy to help anybody that's going through this healthy. And I do this all the time. And, and by the way, I've said this well over a hundred times, usually put my email up in a slide at a presentation somewhere with thousands of people. And probably less than 20 people have ever done it. So happy to say reach out and I know that nobody will. Which goes to the second point. Just do something. Even if that is emailing me or emailing your friends or emailing anybody. Just do something. Reach out and try like, try to create a biased action because you'll never have the answers. Everything is against you. You'll hear a bunch of no's. There'll be really tough days. And you can read about it from I mean, other, other guests on this podcast have written and talked extensively about like how difficult a lot of this stuff is. And it's really, it's true, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's really, I mean, the alternative is having a great high paying job for most people, most people that are founders, like the alternative is working in investment banking Poor you, like just do it and everything will be fine one way or another. And once you have that in the back of your head and you, you understand that then you can start doing more and more and more. So Reach out to people with your vision, share it, get feedback, talk to people. And then through that, they will start introducing you to other people. They will say, oh, you know what, Nathan? I can't help you, but my buddy Joe or Susie, they would be great. And they just got laid off and they have six months severance and they're looking for a project. So the more you talk about it, the more likely it is that those kinds of connections will come up. And that's where you'd use a tool like Strata, of course, 
to manage all of that. But doing something, getting people involved, getting people engaged, building a community of people that share your vision and want to make it true. Um, I think that's really the, the fundamental bottom line here for any advice to anybody. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's COVID or not. It doesn't matter. Like none of it matters. Like just do something and, and you'll learn so much along the way and COVID and other catastrophes will actually happen and then go away and things will go back to normal and the world will change and that's okay. That's an inevitable fact. Yeah. You can only control the controllables. Exactly. Amazing, man. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, last question is where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Yeah. So strata.cc is where, um, is where we're posting a bunch of stuff. And then uh, just Thor at strata.cc is where they can reach out. And that's probably the easiest. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.